Here we go. I forgot to swing my microphone around. This is 20 questions with Pastor Mike. That's me. I'm not the questions. I'm the mic. And I'm taking your questions live from the YouTube chat right now. You're loading them in. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining. The early birds are here and you get a chance to have your question answered. And we're starting with question number one, which I've already got ready. Just two seconds. I need my button. You see... This button, I'm not entirely sure. Either either it self-destructs my house or it makes the counter go up. Okay, good. I got the right button. Now, first question is from UK Dove Girl, who is concerned because uh, she has a question that makes her wonder about the reliability of Scripture. And I want us to not only answer the question, but to answer the worry. So track with me here. This is her question. UK Dove Girl says, Hi, Pastor. Greetings from England from an appreciative lady. Hi. Glad you're joining me. Uh, I'm very confused about why Psalms 14 and 53 are almost identical. Is this an error in scripture? Are there any pairs of Psalms also duplicated? This is causing me to worry about the reliability of scripture. Please help me understand this with huge thanks. And you are hugely welcome. But let's look at the, the issue itself. So Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are like almost the same. Like it's the same Psalm almost entirely. And there's, uh, you know, when I look at um, commentaries, a lot of them have just, because I one question, you know, this question I, I look at ahead of time, the rest are all coming in live. But when I look at commentaries on these things, the, um, uh, the commentaries are often like at a loss as to why 14 and 53 are so similar or what the differences are. I think there's something here for us though, but first let me just show you guys the similarity. So, this is quoted in Romans 3. It's actually kind of an important section that's quoted in Romans in, in building the case that all people have sinned and need Jesus, need salvation through grace and through faith, not works. But he, it's like to the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They're corruptible. They do abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Now, if I could read the whole thing, but let me just show you guys. Here's Psalm 53. To the choir master, and it's slightly different title, according to Mahala, uh, Mahalath, I was going to add an extra la in there, Mahalath, uh, a masculine of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So this is like really similar, almost identical. Here's a few differences between these. Let me just point them out real quick. Um, in Psalm 14, the, you know, we, we have the Ella in the in the Hebrew, Elohim or Yahweh. These are different names for God or terms for God. One's more like a name, but these are both used in Psalm 14. But in Psalm 53, only Elohim is used. This is why in verse 2, it says God looks down from heaven. That's Psalm 53. It's translating Elohim as God, a Hebrew word that has a, a, a variety of uses beyond the normal English word of God. But at any rate, Psalm 14 verse 2 it says, the Lord looks down from heaven. Now, this is in many translations, this strange capitalizing of the lowercase O-R-D in Lord. That's actually giving you a hint that it's God's name, Yahweh, that's being used there. So they'll capitalize the word strangely. I mean, it, to catch your attention to say, hey, in the Hebrew, this is God's name. Um, so there's there's a difference, Yahweh and Elohim. And now they're both obviously referring to, to the same being, God. There's no issue there. The other differences are kind of like subtle. Um, there might be a different tune for Psalm 14 because it has this, um, and, and Psalm 53, because this one just says to the choir master of David, but Psalm 53 has this according to Mahalath, 
which is a Hebrew term that might be referring to like the style of, of music. So um, that could be going on there. This We're a little bit too far removed from the time of David to really know quite what that means, to be honest. So there's a debate there. But let me point out a difference. Um, and that is in verses 5 and 6. So Psalm, let me start with Psalm 14, since that's the one that appears first in your Bible. Psalm 14, 5 and 6 says, There they are in great terror. Now it's talking about wicked people who were coming against God's, God's people. That those people, those wicked people are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. This is, God's going to be with them. God's comforting them. God's presence is with the righteous, even though the wicked are coming against them. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Okay, now this is interesting because verse 6 is the only time in Psalm 14 where the wicked are directly spoken to. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So the wicked people are addressed and they're threatened that, um, or rather they're, they're addressed. Um, I, I shouldn't say that they're threatened here because it just, it's actually a comfort to the righteous there. The Lord is his refuge. God is going to hide you. He's going to be with you. So the overall message is, um, the wicked want to put, put the righteous to shame, right? But God is with them. He's with them. He is their refuge. They can, he can, they can hide in God. Now, this is where Psalm 53 is a little different than Psalm 14. And then I'll address the issue of what about a duplicated psalm? Should this cause me to question the reliability of the Bible? Verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 14 are really just verse 5 in Psalm 53. But here's where the biggest differences appear. There they are in great terror. Okay, that starts the same, right? There they are in great dread is what we had in Psalm 14. Still talking about the same group of people. But then it changes um, where there is no terror. Okay, so yes, the, the the idea here is before the wicked, they weren't in terror. They were arrogant. They were lofty. They were coming against the righteous, but now they're fearful. They weren't before. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, which is a huge threat. A huge threat. Um, so scattering the bones isn't just killing you. It's, it's implying that there's consequences in the afterlife. The bones are scattered, meaning you don't get proper burial. You, your bones are scattered, not gathered together and put in proper places in, in sort of like the customary ways. So this may imply like an eternal shame and suffering um, or judgment, you know, result that's going to happen because of their, their things that they've done. Then it says, you put them to shame for God has rejected them. And now the you in Psalm 14 was the, the you was the wicked. They were being, they were being spoken to directly and they were being told that God is their refuge. God is the refuge of the poor. Then, in this case, the ones who are being spoken to are the ones who are God's people, right? You put them to shame. That's interesting. Um, you could say the you here is God. That's possible. But the encamps against you, you put them to shame implies that it's the people. So the, the, the address is different. That's what changes between Psalm 14 and 53. Psalm 14 um, speaks to the wicked. And it tells them that God is going to be the refuge of the poor. Psalm 53 speaks to the poor or the, the righteous, the good, the ones who are on God's side, so to speak. And it tells them they are going to put the people to shame who wanted to put them to shame. And they're going to do it by letting God do it for them. So what I'm going to suggest is that they're speaking different things to different groups of people. One of them is more of a warning. That is Psalm 53. One of them is more of a comfort. That is Psalm uh, 14. And uh, other than that, they're almost the same. So there's a couple differences that are there. And I think we can learn these things. Perhaps there's a lesson in the idea that we have the same basic ideas, how they, how they communicate differently to different groups of people. So I can give an example of this from the New Testament, 
where it talks about how the gospel and the gospel going out from the disciples is like the fragrance of, of Christ. But that fragrance smells different to different people. This is in 2 Corinthians 2 verses 15 and 16. And it suggests that the fragrance of Christ, it smells like death leading to death to the unsaved. And it smells like life leading to life to the saved, right? Because those who, who, who see the message of Christ and they see a dead savior who didn't rise, it smells like death to them. The message smells like death, but it leads to their death because they rejected it. And the ones who see the life of Christ, the resurrection, do you get the idea that um, the same, just like the same Psalm effectively can have two very different ways it lands? In the ears of the wicked, it's, it's, it's turmoil and fear. In the ears of the righteous, it's comfort and it's hope. And I think the gospel is the same way. So um, that I think is the my, my, my answer on that one. But let me now deal with the rest of your question, which was this. So UK Dove Girl, you said, are there any other pairs of Psalms that are also duplicated? Nothing like Psalm 15 and or Psalm 14 and 53, nothing like those two. That's the closest to a parallel we have, but there are differences that seem notable to me worth having it in there twice. Also repetition reinforces so maybe God's way of saying, I, I want you to really get this. Romans three taps into these two Psalms to emphasize another teaching that we aren't talking about today, but that's important as well. Um, but no, no other Psalms like that. The closest thing you'd get is actually um, a Psalm that is repeated in one of the more historical books. So like we, we read about say Moses's Psalm and then it's in song you know, in the Pentateuch, we also read about it in the book of Psalms. We read in, um, I think it's first Chronicles, but it, it's in first or second Chronicles. We read a, a Psalm of David is actually in the text. It's also in the book of Psalms. That kind of repetition is not really a concern. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't really see why this would concern us. You said also, this is causing me to worry about the reliability of scripture. Please help me understand this with huge things. I just think we have to just let the Bible be what it is. Um, it's okay that in the inspiration process, God inspired the same or similar content to be written down in slightly different ways. In fact, that's kind of what the four gospels are, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of similarities, some differences. We trust inspired by the word of God, inspired by, by the Holy Spirit to give us the word of God. So I hope that that helps you. Um, sometimes these questions, I've been there so many times, so many times in the past where I was like struggling with answering a question like, oh, if I can't answer this. Oh man, like I'm just feeling like, like, like I have to answer every issue in order for myself to have faith in Christ. And I think it's important to answer questions, but if we think we have to answer every question, and if there's any question I don't know the answer to, then our faith is going to be resting in a very precarious place. Um, logically, reasonably, it's okay to say, I have so much good reasons to support my faith in Christ that I'm going to be okay with a few areas where I don't know the right answers. And that I think that's reasonable. I think that normal, rational people can feel that way. <laughs> All right, number two. David D says, I struggle deeply with feeling the presence of a relationship with God. I believe I'm saved, but I had wandered far and often during my youth. To this day, I try to imagine my relationship with God, but I still feel estranged. Mostly, I think, because of sinfulness. I am desperate for that deep living connection to the father. What can I do to get connected in relationship with him? So David, let me, let me, let me tell you what I can't do, what I don't know how to do. I don't know how to provide you with instructions that will result in the feelings, the good and wonderful feelings that you desire to have right here. What I can do is I can encourage you in basic, good, healthy Christian practices, which is when you sin, you keep short accounts with God. 
That is, you come, don't wait a day, don't wait a week, don't wait a month. Come right then and there and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And it's not just the apology, but it's also important that you assert your trust in the grace of Christ to cover you for that sin. Because sometimes we perceive a distance between us and God because we're not trusting that we're forgiven. So we're the anxiety is in us. If you've ever had a friend who... who um, they didn't want to talk to you. Maybe I've had a friend where I loaned them money and then they didn't pay me back and then they just stopped talking to me altogether as a friend. And they didn't realize that I was over it. I didn't care. I was never going to bring it up again. They thought I wasn't over it. So they separated from me, right? They felt distance. So they created distance. And that can be our issue there. So you need to you know, repent of any issues. Trust the grace of Christ for you and say, Lord, I trust that I can draw near to the throne of grace in time of need, which is now. I'm believing that. That's important so that you draw near to God. Um, the other things you can do is, uh, you know, obviously reading the word, spending time in prayer, and don't don't make this mistake I've made for, made for many years, which is when you open the Bible, you feel like you're supposed to have a particular feeling. Um, so let me do, I'll offer an, a marriage analogy that might help us here. So if if in marriage, I thought every time I did an activity with my wife, like we go get dinner together, or we go on a walk, if I thought every time I was supposed to feel a special connection to her, that would actually hurt those events because I would feel like walking with her was a failure. We go on a walk. Me and my wife, we usually walk in the morning. We'll go on a, a usually like a two-mile walk just, just to try to be healthy. Plus, we live in California where you can do that. <laughs> and... Um, well, we don't walk too far because we also we live in Long Beach, which is not the safest area. But um, uh, but we will go on these walks. And if I thought that every time we went on a walk, we're supposed to like feel like a special husband wife connection, I would actually do less walks with her. But instead, if I think it's just healthy to go on walks on a regular basis, then I'm just going to do it knowing that in the long run, I'm building our relationship. And it does do that. Those walks actually build our relationship. So that's what I'm going to suggest with like your Bible reading and your time in prayer, don't look for the instantaneous sense of relationship with God in that moment. Look for um, the types of things that cultivate deeper relationship with God and pursue those just like you would with a healthy long-term relationship like a marriage. So I'm, I think, yeah, pray. Don't think, but do I feel like God's listening to me? Like, oh, no, no, you're, you're here, you know, not trusting God to listen to you because you don't feel like he's listening. The problem here is partly I don't feel relationship with God. The other problem partly is I'm relying too much on feeling relationship. And when you liberate yourself from that need to feel that all the time, to feel the constant confirmation, because that's part of it, right? We, we want David, like you and me both, we want to know that God loves us, that God forgives us. And if we rely on our present feelings for that, that can cause us to doubt all the time that God loves us or forgives us. But the cross of Christ stands as a permanent testimony of God's continuing love for you. You can draw near because of the cross, not because you feel like you can draw near. Like he tells you, come, trust me, you can come. Trust me, you can come. And, and that's what I would encourage you to do. Um, build the long-term development of your relationship with God, not just for an, a momentary devotional time of joy. Focus on that long-term thing and press forward and trust his love. Number three, Encourage, Encourage Website has a question. It says, often John 14, 12 through 14 is used by word of faith preachers that, that I used to listen to. Their claim is that we are, to, 
we are to do the same and more of the miracles that Jesus did. How should I see these verses? Okay, so let's talk about that. John 14, verses 12 through 14. Let's read them and then we're going to tackle this issue. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I'm going to point, uh, in fact, mods, if I can get one of the mods to put in the live chat, a link to the video I did on how correct is Kenneth Copeland, where we go through Jesus talking about how if we ask for anything in his name. There's a whole video on that. Uh, I spent, like, I actually delayed my teaching for like a week or two just to spend more time working on that particular teaching, and I would recommend you guys check it out. Um, the, um, the question I'm going to point out here is just this one part. I'm going to do the works Jesus does and greater works than, than he does. Okay, well, some would say this is only talking about the apostles. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant with that because it seems so generic. Whoever believes in me. That seems more generic. It doesn't seem like this is limited to any special group. It seems like it's more about just whoever believes in Jesus. Others would say, well, yes, they did do these things, but they were temporary. It wasn't meant whoever believes in me for all time. Now, that that's actually entirely possible because... We sometimes read what Jesus says to a crowd and we act like it's going to apply for, for 2,000 years when in some cases it doesn't. Jesus says to the disciples, go into all the, uh, the towns of, of Israel. And then somebody reads that today and they think, should I go to Israel? And it's like, well, no, <laughs> that's not what you're being told. So we're just misunderstanding that. That's possible. Um, but that's not the direction that I would go on this particular passage. Where I would go is to suggest that Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works. I would think that greater may refer to greater in number and my support for this. Like not, okay, so Jesus dies for the salvation of the world. These are the works Jesus does. He rises from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He, um, he heals a paralytic. He heals a man who was born blind. He, he's got a man who's, you know, got the hand and he stretches it out. He casts countless demons out of people. So, what exactly do we mean by greater works? Like, what are you going to do? He walks on the water. He commands the weather. What are you going to do that's greater in, like, degree than what Jesus did? I can't hardly imagine. I mean, command the moon to turn into a mushroom? Like, is that, is that even greater? It's bigger, but it's not greater. Because healing a man born blind, casting demons out, dying for the sins of the world. What Jesus did was greater in, de in degree. But what I'm going to suggest is that what we do it might be greater in quantity. And in that sense, the church as a whole, we do greater works. Why? And here's the support. Because I'm going to the Father. See, Jesus is here. He's, you know, the whole idea of John 14, 12 through uh, 14 is this. Jesus is coming to a point where he will stop doing miracles himself on earth. He's going to stop because he's going to go to the Father. He will do those through the church now. The church, and I would, I would apply this more corporately, right, that we will do more than what Jesus did. And we have, if you think of it as quantity, not quality of works. Same kinds of quality. We'll do the kinds of things he did, but we'll do more in number because he goes to be with the Father. So if you read the book of Acts, we read about, um, you know, miracles where Paul, wherever he goes, people are getting healed. P Peter, wherever he goes, people are getting healed. In that sense, you could say this was fulfilled. But should I expect every individual Christian to be doing greater works in number than Jesus? And the answer I have to this is absolutely not. I don't think that's what Jesus intended. It's not what we see modeled in scripture in the book of Acts. 
it tends to, these great healing miracles tend to revolve around specific people like Peter and Paul, and it goes out to confirm the gospel. So the miracles, there, there have been greater quantity. And when you look at the church globally, there's going to be greater miracles quantity-wise than there is in the, in, in the, in the uh, life of Jesus, which is temporary. Right? But individually, if you're expecting, um, there are churches that teach us that you're going to go around and you're going to do great. But even in those churches, you will have maybe one or two people that supposedly are actually doing this. If they really are is a question that I'm not going to get into. You just won't have it as the corporate thing, each individual um, is doing all these massive miracles. All right, just so you guys know, we're gonna go to the next question. But before we do, um, two things. We've got, we're full up on questions. I have all 20, and I'm gonna tackle them all one at a time. We'll go through them, it may take a while, but hopefully I'm giving you thoughtful answers. And um, I'm moving quickly, so sometimes I say stuff, like in the book of Acts, and I mentioned something, that was kind of an important point, I hope it lands. Um, it's a result of a lot of study, it's not just me throwing it out there. But also, I wanna mention this. Um, some of you guys on our on our YouTube channel and in our Facebook page, I have a Facebook page you guys can check out. You've been um, being censored. And <laughs> you're like, I see you complain sometimes like, why are my comments being deleted? I just want you to know we rarely delete comments. I've told the mods generally speaking that we, we just generally are pretty rare to delete comments. We delete comments or remove comments when people have a rude manner, like they're treating other people cruel, cruelly, not just disagreeing. I don't care about disagreement. Rudeness. We will, we will get rid of comments to not create an atmosphere where people are cruel and rude to each other. And we also delete spam comments. People that keep posting the same thing over and over again or trying to post a lot of just anything spammy. So if people are trolling us and being rude, yeah, we'll delete that. But otherwise, no, disagreement is not policed. Um, what's going on right now, YouTube and Facebook are, are all always experimenting with different like AIs, algorithms that are going to be controlling the comments to try to get rid of bad comments. Now, at the moment, YouTube and probably Facebook too, they kind of dial this up too high and they end up deleting comments. For instance, uh, my own mods have had their comments deleted and certainly they're not deleting their own comments. You know, that's that's YouTube's AI. It, nobody's even looking at the comments. It's just YouTube's trying to figure out how to get rid of bad comments quickly and hopefully they get better at it over time. I think they probably will. So stop accusing me of deleting all your comments, guys. That's not happening. And um, people going all over, Mike Winger doesn't he want my disagreement on his channel. We're like, okay. All right. Anyway. I mean, if, if I was that way, I would delete those comments too, wouldn't I? But I leave them there. Why? Because I don't care. But it's a little bit false. All right. Number four question. Tony uh, Oshikanlu says, some weeks ago, you said you believed common sense is the best argument for God. Can you elaborate? Um, yeah, so let me go to Romans 1. This is, why I, this is why I say this. Well, a couple reasons why I say it, but Romans 1 is what it comes from. Talking about like how we, how we know um, that God exists through creation. We know through creation. Creation is kind of telling us that God exists. And creation is something everyone experiences. So let me just read the passage here. Um, what can be known of God, about God is plain to them, that's people, because God has shown it to them. So how, how has God shown us knowledge of God? It, it doesn't say scripture here, although he, scripture gives us further knowledge of God. But this is what's called general revelation, whereas we often call scripture special revelation. Here it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, what does it say, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. People can tell there's God. How? In the things that have been made. 
so that they're without excuse. Now, this doesn't mean, in my view, that everybody believes in God. It means everybody has been shown that God is real so that whether they believe or not, they're without excuse for various reasons. They have different beliefs. So what's my opinion on this? Like, why do I call this common sense? Because this isn't really like the Kalam cosmological argument. It's not like the contingency argument. It's not a well-developed philosophical argument. It's simply saying, when you go and look around, you can tell God exists. That's kind of what it's saying. And here's what's interesting. I find that a lot of people have, have been persuaded by this. You go, do you believe in God? And they go, yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, just look around. Or they have they have a baby and they see their baby and they're like, oh, there's a God. They, they, they go and they study like biology and they're like, wow, there's a God. Or they just go swimming in the ocean and they see the fish and they're like, wow, there's a God. They look at the sky and the stars and they see how big and wonderful it all is and, and they just believe in God. So they don't know all the details of Jesus, but I think that this is common sense pointing towards God. Now, for those who have not acknowledged that, they're without excuse. They should They should believe in God, but... Maybe they've been lied to. Maybe they've been deceived. Maybe they've been misled by various other things. So I think that things like a cosmological argument, a philosophical argument, a biological argument, fine-tuning argument, um, contingency argument, I think these are all different ways of arguing from creation to God using more like of a rigorous philosophical and scientific method. I think those are great. But I still think the most powerful and influential argument is just people looking around and going, yeah, I believe in God. I think it's obvious that God exists. I think it's very obvious. And um, that's why it's my favorite my favorite argument from God is common sense. And if people don't accept that, then I'll go to other places. But it should be acceptable to people. So there's my view. Um, and that's a passage from another verse you could go to is Psalm, Psalm 19. Which says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day-to-day, I love this, day-to-day pours out speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge. The, the knowledge is what? Is the knowledge of the glory of God. Like you look and you go, there is a God and he is glorious because he made all this. Day unto day, as I look at the days, as I, I look at the nights, I'm getting knowledge. Then it tells you this is universal. Like you don't even need language skills for this, right? There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Like every, everybody hears them uh, um without words being spoken because creation itself is declaring this. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world in them. And then it talks more about the sun and all this other stuff. So Psalm 19 is another verse you could take. Number five, Brian Moody says in Act 1935, where it says the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter, is this referring to the planet Jupiter? And did they know of other planets in that period of time? Um, oh gosh, I, I'd have to look into this more to be able to answer your question. Well, Brian, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make stuff up. So let's, we'll read the passage though, and then I'll briefly comment and move on just because I won't know the more thorough answer of what historically, um, they knew, um, I can tell you a couple things, but anyway, Acts 1935. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, and here the context is this, Paul's in Ephesus and He's people are getting saved, and this means that they're going to stop worshiping idols. This means they're going to stop buying idols. This means that the temple to Diana is going to be unattended and deserted. Um, and ultimately, that's going to cause conflict for people who sell idols, who perform the rituals and, and the services in the temple, and all that. 
So the town clerk says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that this city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So here, I wonder what version you were reading. Let me see. Yeah, I just guessed New King James, maybe. So um, he says here, uh, the great goddess Diana, whereas say the ESV says the great of the great Artemis. There's just different names for the same beings, the same, you know, conceived of beings here. And, um, and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Um, Zeus, Jupiter, I think here, these are going to be, again, just alternate names. Uh, but here it's sacred stone that fell from the sky. So off the top of my head, it's been a long time since I looked at this passage. I think what they, they had was a meteorite that fell down and that they then ascribed religious value to and put involved in their worship of, um, of Artemis, Diana, and that sort of thing. Uh, the second part of your, so it's kind of unrelated to the planet Jupiter, uh, physical planet Jupiter. On, on the other issue is this, they did astrologically, did know of um, at least what they called wandering stars. How much knowledge they had of planets at the time in the first century, right then and there, I don't remember. I looked into this a while back. There is knowledge in the first century that the earth is spherical. And I know that's going to start, that's going to trigger people. <laughs> there is knowledge. They, they were not thinking that the earth was, was, was all flat. That wasn't necessarily like a dominant view at the time. But... Um, but yeah, otherwise I'd have to like, you know, consult um, astronomy history to answer that question. So number six, Jesus saves has a question. What would you say to people who say that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are mere extensions of the one God, the Father? Um, I would first, I would ask this. Can you prove that with scripture? That's kind of an important thing. Sometimes what happens is we get a question like that and we feel like we have to prove it wrong, but we haven't asked them to demonstrate why they think it's the case in the first place. So that's the first question I think I'd start with is don't try, don't immediately defend the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the the personhood of the Son, the Father, the Spirit, that, that, that they're eternal, they're all eternal. You want to ask, what do you mean by mere extension, right, and what, what scripture do you use to support that view? Then after they answer that, you may have a lot more to talk to them about. Then you can also bring other scriptures. So a couple of things that I would say are challenging to the view, um, obviously, which I think is heretical, but challenging the view that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are mere extensions of the Father. That's a strange and I'd say heretical perspective on the, on the doctrine of who God is. But one of the verses that would be a problem with that is John 1. So John 1, 1, it says in the beginning, and this is uh, John hearkening back to Genesis 1. So in the beginning, like when all things are first created, it says, and, and let's try to track with how this applies to your, your uh, question here, um, was the word. Now, you, you know, as you read on, maybe it's verse 17, where it says the word became flesh, th that the word here is Jesus. So this is, this is talking about Jesus before he had the name Jesus, before he became flesh. This is him. So in the beginning was the word and the word is two things. And if your doctrine of God doesn't include both of these things, your doctrine of God's not biblical, right? The word was with God and the word was God. There is some sense in which the word is with God and the word is God. You have to embrace both of those things or your doctrine of who Jesus is, who God is, isn't, isn't a biblical doctrine. If Jesus is merely an extension of the Father, right, then how is he with God? That doesn't make sense. 
because an extension wouldn't imply separate personhood and you need personhood to be with someone. So the word is with, there's a, there's a, there's a relational connection between the word and God, yet the word is also God. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity does seem to answer this question for us. It suggests, yes, well, that, that's one God, three persons. So there you can have one God, he is God, right? But you can have him with or the spirit. Now, we can go on. Uh, if, if, the, if the son is, is an extension, I want to know what they mean by extension again, of the father. But that implies the son did not always exist. Unless the son has always been extending from the father, in which case... You could even work that into a doctrine of the Trinity. Some people try to. Um, the filioque thing, anyway. Um, so he was in the beginning with God. right? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if something comes into existence, it's, it's made. The Son, right? Jesus, the Word, he's with, the, he's with God, with the Father, is what I'm going to say here. But also, he is not made. Because anything that is made... Is made through him so he has no moment of creation no moment of coming into being so then so he's with god eternally he's with the father eternally that implies that he's not merely an extension that's just one of the verses i would take you to you could also go to passages where jesus talks about the father talks even more uh directly to the father when he prays to the father that is confusing on the theory that he's merely an extension which implies he's not a, his own person so he's a person, um, has has personhood. His personhood gives him eternal has eternal relationship with God. He's tripersonal within himself, and he's not merely an extension of the Father. We just don't see that in Scripture. All right, next question, number seven. Jordan Filar says, "Can you explain anointing in the Bible and what the New Testament application is for believers?" I've heard phrases like, "That song or speaker is anointed," or "The anointing is in the room." Is this correct? Thanks. Um, th- this this comes to something I've I've been doing really slowly over the years. As a as a Christian, I can't escape the fact that I've been raised in a particular Christian environment, and I've also been raised in a worldly environment. Maybe this is a good parallel for us. I'm very concerned that the ungodliness of our worldly culture will impact my Christian values, and I won't see that I'm being unchristian in some area of my life. That's a concern of mine. I'm the frog in the, in, the, in the water as the water gets hot, and I don't notice. That's my concern. But there's another issue, which is I didn't just, like, drop out of the sky, grab a Bible, and then have, like, Paul and James and Peter and Jesus and Moses tutor me, okay? I didn't have that. I came into a church with an environment, and that environment includes biblical and sometimes unbiblical things as well. Every Christian has to deal with the fact that we all are experiencing um, the potential of having man's traditions mixed in with our understanding of God's word. So why do I bring this up? Uh, one of the ways that we can see, that we can actually notice that we've got this, when, that, and this is really cool because you can notice you've got like a tradition of man that's being superimposed on the word of God, is when we have slogans and words which have meanings and concepts that are kind of foreign to scripture. That's why I slowly have tried to stop using phrases as Christian um, terminologies that don't find their, their presence in Scripture. Especially if, like, say the term baptism of the Spirit is one of these. Baptism of the Spirit, I think, is just what happens when a believer gets saved. 
I don't think it's this sort of secondary experience. Now, I, that's my belief, I believe, and so I will not use it to refer to something other than what I think Scripture means when it uses it. When you hear the term anointed, we often use it to refer to like, um, in our culture, our Christian culture, and perhaps Jordan, you've experienced this as well, that song or speaker is anointed, you say, or the anointing is in the room. That is not quite, like that's a loosey-goosey way of using the term, whereas scripture seems to use it in different functions. So in the Old Testament, the term anointed can be used of somebody who's um, like been officially put into a position of authority. So the king has been anointed and they would actually put oil on the person and Saul was God's anointed, even though Saul was wicked and doing bad things, but he was God's chosen person. Okay, sometimes we use it for that in that in that context. Um, sometimes we don't. Um, we also see anointed referring to like sometimes like a like a spiritual type thing. But more often it's referring to like some sort of position of authority that's legitimate. That's important. It's a legitimate position of authority. What I would encourage you to do is this, Jordan, look up the word anointed in like a concordance, go on like a Bible search website, look up the word anointed and just look at a bunch of the ways that it's used and ask yourself if in your culture of Christianity, you're using it the same way as it is in scripture. When someone says the anointing is in the room, I don't really like that phrase. Um, and I don't know entirely what it means. And I'm not going to argue with them, but personally, I'm like, where in scripture do I see the anointings in the room? Okay, well, you could say, well, in Acts 2, where the, the tongues of fire came and, and you know, the Holy Spirit came upon them and, and they were like speaking in tongues. Okay, but it wasn't what you're talking about. When you're like, the anointings in the room, you're, you're, you're kind of like, man, I'm really feeling this. This is really great. Like, it just starts to get a little squirrely. So I'm not saying that God's presence won't be um, felt by a group of people as they're worshiping. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that those phrases, the anointing is in the room, it might be a way of us bypassing our normal reasoning because we're sort of on a bandwagon of spiritually having to approve of what everyone around us is doing. And I don't know, probably said enough. All right. I, I, I probably could have answered that better. I'm, I'm trying to think about if I ramble a little too much. So sorry about that, Jordan. But number eight, Armand Kruger says about John 3.13, King James Version. Where did Elijah and Enoch go? Elijah appeared at the Mount of Trans Mountain of Transfiguration. Where did he come from? Um, that's an interesting question. So generally speaking, my current, and, and I may change my understanding here, Armand. Armand. Um, so just know that. Like, here's my current understanding. Generally, when people die, they, they before Christ died and rose, they would go to like a temporary holding place that they would just talk about Sheol as being like the grave. Everybody goes down to the grave. But within that Sheol, that idea of Sheol, there is um, sometimes it's talking about like a physical location of just the dirt in the ground. But other times it's talking about kind of where the where the, where the soul or spirit goes. Um, in that place, there were two sort of locations. One, a place of, of um, unpleasant experiences where you're awaiting judgment. And the other, a place of comfort where you're awaiting the redemption that would come through Christ. Now, I believe that when Jesus died and rose again, I think he took those that were in that waiting place, which he, he seems to call Abraham's bosom, or which is, I know that's a really, that's King James style language there, but think of it as Abraham's comforts. Uh, that's a better, perhaps, way to picture it. 
And anyways, that, she, that he led them up to the very presence of God. Now they're awaiting the resurrection. They're awaiting their new bodies. That's what we read in Revelation. These, these souls are like, when will, when will we get our new bodies? But they're in God's presence and comforts now. Not just Abraham's, but God's. That's where Paul talks about how he'd rather die and go be with the Lord than continue on living in the flesh. Because he thinks that when he dies, he doesn't go to that place of comfort. Abraham's comforts, but God, his very presence himself with Jesus. Okay, that being said, how do you explain Elijah then? Right? Elijah goes up. Right? Elijah when he gets taken, he gets taken up and then he's gone. Later on, Elijah comes back and he shows up in John 3:13. Let's look at the passage. Um Oh, excuse me. It's actually it's a Mount of Transfiguration, not John 3. I see what you're looking at in John 3. And I will go to the King James version for you. Just a second. So in the matter of transfiguration, Elijah comes back. And the question is like, where did he come from? And then where did he go? What happened? <laughs> All right. So um, this, is, this is the verse you think might weigh on this. Jesus says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. Okay. I'm, I'm reading King James Version. I think that there's possibly an important difference here with some other versions, but I won't talk about that because I don't think it's relevant um, for the question. So, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. This is Jesus speaking of his authority to go up to heaven and come down and go up and come down, so to speak. Um, you got to back up and see this in the context of Moses. So, oh man, this could be a long answer. I'm going to give it as short as I can. Forgive me if I lose anybody. It's not intentional. Moses goes up to the mountain. No one's allowed to go up there. Only Moses, right? When he's getting the law of God. And he goes, don't, don't let anybody else draw near or else I'll strike him down. And so Moses goes up and he brings back the knowledge of the Mosaic law. Jesus doesn't go up to the mountain. He comes from heaven with that full authority. And he brings this message that Jesus is now telling Nicodemus he should accept and receive. Why? Because Jesus has the authority of heaven. And nobody has ascended to heaven in that sense where they go up to heaven, get this full message of the full revealed gospel and then bring it to earth. Rather, even people like um, Isaiah who had like a vision, they had a, like a heavenly visit. This doesn't mean no one had a heavenly visit, but rather no one did like the mosaic thing. Moses goes to the mountain, gets information, comes back. Moses goes into the tabernacle, but it's still distanced. It's still limited. Jesus has the unlimited revelation of God, so to speak. That I think is the idea here. I don't think he's saying um, nobody has ever ascended at all in any way, shape, or form. He just means in the context of bringing the authoritative teachings of God like I am right now. Um, I know that's way too short to answer that question, but that's how I take that verse. So where did Elijah and Enoch go? Um, they may be exceptions to the rule. They might have gone to Abraham's bosom or perhaps they went into, they were the exceptions to the rule. God takes them up and they don't, their souls don't go down. He takes them up. That may well be the case. I don't know. Um, they appear at the Mount of Transfiguration. And, well, it's Moses and Elijah that appear at the Mount of Transfiguration, not Enoch. And um, where did they come from? Where did, where did they go? That That's unknown to me. Could be they were in Abraham's bosom. Could be they were in God's very presence and they were the exceptions to the rule. Um, so all that to say, I don't know. <laughs> I really let you down there, didn't I? Tanya Rhodes says, in John 18 from verse 33, Jesus and Pilate share private conversations inside his residence without any of Jesus' followers being present. How would the disciples know what was said? Did he tell his disciples post-resurrection proving that Jesus was true? 
Um, so John 18:33. Let's just glance at that real quick. We do get a lot more info from John than the other gospels about the conversations between Jesus and Pilate. So it says Pilate entered the judgment hall again, you know, um, are you the king of the Jews? He asks Jesus. Jesus answered him saying, here, I'm going to go to actually, sorry, I'm going to go to ESV. I think it's just a lot easier for people to understand. John 18, 33. Um, Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Okay, so um, there is consistency here that between the conversation between Jesus and Pilate in that Jesus in the gospel, say Mark and Luke, which I was looking at very recently, he uses this interesting Greek phrase when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, su leges. An interesting Greek phrase that means yeah, but not in the way you think. Yes, but not the way you think. That's a really interesting thing. This seems to be a fuller version of that same conversation where Jesus is like, sure, I'm the king, right? But my kingdom is not of this world. So, so he's affirming that he's a king, but he's not affirming what that means in the context of like a challenge to Caesar. He's like, no, no, I'm not king. He's not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight and all that sort of thing. Um, now, where could this come from? Now, it's possible Pilate told somebody. It's possible that Jesus told them after um, he was there for 40 days. So he may have told them that could be another uh, possible thing. It could be the Holy Spirit revealed it to, say, John as he's writing. Just the Holy Spirit just gave him this is what was said. This is what I want you to write. But there's another possibility as well I want to mention. And this is Luke who mentions a woman who was a follower ultimately. I'm trying to remember what her name was. Um, There it is. It's Joanna. Joanna. And let's read about what Luke says about this lady, because she may have had access to Pilate. So, um, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary um, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. So here we find at least, um, there was another one from Pilate, though. I'm probably just not finding it. Anyway, here's one of the people who at least with, um, oh, no, no, it was Pilate's wife. This is the danger of being alive. Um, in this scripture, there's a connection with Pilate's wife, and she sends a messenger. Oh, man, I cannot remember the details. You'll have to look it up. Pilate's wife and the messenger. That gave us perhaps inside info about Herod's household from Joanna, but there was somebody else, Pilate's wife and a messenger, who may have had the inside knowledge. So she's a Christian, and she would have likely reported Oh, here's what was said to Pilate. That that would be a very plausible source for John to have. Man, maybe somebody knows. I, I totally cannot remember. Oh, well. Such as being live and not having five minutes to go look something up. Next question. Favor Fali, or Fali says, Does God punish children for the sins of their fathers? Um, uh, no and... Maybe-ish. Okay, no, not not in the sense you're probably thinking of, which is like as a Christian who's like, is God going to punish my kids for the things I've done? Uh, in that sense, no. Um, like they'll be sort of standing before God in judgment and they're going to be punished for what parents did. No, absolutely not. Um, but there is a different issue, which is do, parent, do kids suffer for the sins of their fathers? Like they're not punished, but they're 
Do they suffer for the sins of their parents? And the answer is yes. And we all know the answer is yes to this, right? If, if a father is a brutal and angry and violent man and he abuses his kids, his kids are suffering, not punishment, punishment. They're not getting what they deserve. They're suffering for the sins of the parent. Okay. We all suffer for each other's sins because that's the nature of the fallen world we live in. If a child's in poverty because of a lazy dad who won't go to work and, and loses jobs because he's because he's violent and mean-tempered and stuff. And then the kid's in poverty. Well, the kid's suffering for the sins of the father, but they're not being punished for the sins of the father. There's a difference. We would view them as like uh, suffering the, either as a victim or a sad collateral damage of somebody else's sin. There is the passage in the Old Testament where it says that God revisits the sins of the father on the children for the third and fourth generation, uh, but that he shows mercy and love for generations of, is it thousands or hundreds, thousands of generations to those who love him. But the important thing people miss in this passage is, this is when God's revealing his name to Moses. The important thing people miss in this passage is these children are those who are per, who are continuing in the sins of their parents, right? He revisits the sins of the fathers on the children, third and fourth generation. What's implied there is that they're the ones continuing to commit the sins of their parents. But for those who stay faithful, there's, and there's an imbalance, third and fourth generation versus thousands of generations, because God is... In a sense, he he offers more grace, right, than judgment. Um, grace abounds. So there's that one. Number 11, Larissa Clitus says, is it biblically wrong to adopt a child before marriage when you know you want to marry? And what about adopting a child if you don't intend to marry? Um, Larissa, if, if you're talking about a single woman or let's say a man who wants to adopt a child just to take care of them, I don't see any anything wrong with that. I mean, obviously that's not ideal because they don't have two parents, but if this child is otherwise in foster care, then it's better than that, I think, right? So like you're saying, yeah, I want to take care of a kid. Um, but if you're saying I'm, I'm living with somebody, I'm intending to marry and we want to adopt, I'm like, get married. What is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> This is so easy. Get married. Um, if, if this is probably not your scenario, but let's see, because who knows who's, who's listening. If two people are living together and they're going to have kids together, but they will not get married, something is broken in their ability to think about their relationship. Get married. And if any reason you have to not get married is probably not a good one, or it results in you shouldn't even be together in the first place. That being said, um, I don't think there's any biblical scripture to tell us about adoption, except that adoption is seen as a very positive thing in scripture. Um, as it relates to our relationship with God. We're adopted as children of God through Christ. We, are, we become adopted. Beloved, behold, what manner of love has been given unto us that we should be called children of God, right? We were children of wrath, now we're children of God. We're adopted in. So adoption is something that we, we very much love. In the early church, the idea of abandoned children was kind of a big deal to them. We actually read about this in like the late first century. There were Romans who they they didn't have abortion methods like we have today horrific ways of killing living human beings inside the wombs of their of their parents they didn't have like the of their mothers uh, the kind of ease of medical procedures we have today for that stuff so what they would do they would take their babies and leave them out to expose them this was something that was done you would in their culture they would take a, a baby after it had been born and just leave it out in front of the house and then there were packs of dogs that would roam the city and you would leave your children to die, be eaten by dogs. Why? Because we've only gotten better at this. We haven't actually reformed in our thinking as culture 
thinking that it's okay to kill our children. This is something that's been going on for all of human history, as far as I can tell, um, all of human societies, killing our own children, horrifically. But the early church responded to this, and they started going around the city. We get this in the first century. They were actually taking the kids and then raising them. They started the first orphanages. They started the f caring for them. So like, when it comes to caring for kids who need help, I think it's always a good idea. If, if that answers your question, um, then yeah, um, I hope so. Number 12, this is from Nikki Badger, who says, Can a non-believer bear the fruit of the Spirit? Matthew 7, 17. How can this be? And is it an argument in favor of secular morality? Can a non-believer bear the fruit of the Spirit? Let's look at the passage that you mentioned here. Matthew 7, 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, this is probably a, a parable that I'd like to just one day teach, just stop and teach through by itself, because I think it's complicated and it's not super easy to understand it speaks in very broad terms and it is often abused by people sadly um but the fruit here i don't know if the fruit here is meant to be interpreted as the fruit of the spirit um i think it's talking about the fruit of a person's ministry so the danger is false prophets not whether they're christians or not but whether they're prophets or not whether they're speaking from god or not and generally speaking, false prophets will take advantage of people, at least generally speaking, right? Because they're ravenous wolves. They want to consume you. So when we see cult leaders who are sleeping with six of the women in their cult group, that's because they're inwardly ravenous wolves. Uh, when we see people who are bringing people to follow them and they're abusing those people and they're manipulating those people and they're trying to get power and attention for themselves, not helping and just blessing others, then we see that they're ravenous wolves. So you'll know them by their fruits. You can you can watch the life that they live. Um, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. So this is talking about the fruit of a person's um, behaviors and ministry. So Jeho uh, uh, Mormons would talk about the fruit of the, the Mormon church. right? They would say, they would use this passage. Mormon church is... Look at the good fruit. We're, we're all about families, guys. Family, family, family. We have good morals. Look at U Salt Lake City, Utah. Like we're, we're trying to preach good morals to people. And they would say, see, a good tree has good fruit. But Jesus wasn't talking about the church. In other words, the organization of followers. He was talking about the leaders, the false prophets. That would be about Joseph Smith, not Mormonism. So whether or not Mormonism has good fruit in that sense is not the question that Jesus is asking. He's like, telling us to look at the life of the of the prophet who supposedly is speaking for God when they start this movement. Well, Joseph Smith was a, was a, a forger, a fraud, a proven liar. He clearly and proven, you could prove this, that I don't know how there's any debate on it still. You could demonstrate, and I've done this in some of my videos, you can just type Mike Winger Mormonism, it should pop right up, or go to BibleThinker.org and find this series on Mormonism. But you can demonstrate this. And he also had a number of wives, including getting married, married to women who were already married. That's the fruit of Joseph Smith. Okay, so that's one way to know that Mormonism is false. I'm looking at the prophet, not the, you know, because it's easy for a false prophet to tell his followers, be good moral people, and then try to use them as proof that his false teachings are true. But Jesus isn't giving us that. All that being said, I don't think this weighs in on the question of whether a non-believer can have the fruit of the Spirit. Because I don't think fruit equals fruit of the Spirit here. I think Jesus is just talking about the, the, the life that they're living. Um, um, is this an argument in favor of secular morality? Um, I don't 
think so. But I will say this. When it comes to non-believers doing moral things, the Bible actually says they do. I wouldn't call it the fruit of the Spirit because even if it's coming at the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's not coming from the filling of the Holy Spirit. So a non-believer can do good things. That doesn't mean they're doing that at the filling of the Spirit. They might be at the conviction of the Spirit, but not the filling of the Spirit. There's just a difference here. So Romans chapter 2 talks about this, how Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses, they actually still do good things because they have the law written in their hearts. That's conviction, awareness of right and wrong. So we all have awareness of right and wrong. Um, but when you, get, and a believer knows the difference if you remember when you weren't saved. When you get saved, you're not just aware of right and wrong, you were always aware of right and wrong. But there's like a new inspiration about right and wrong that comes from the Holy Spirit within you. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So I hope that offers some clarity. I think there's, we don't want to go overboard and think that like a non-believer can never do anything godly or, or, or that would look loving or look nice or look kind or something. That doesn't seem true at all. But I also don't think it's biblically supported. Number 13, this is Tara Carlson who says, what is a peacemaker? How controversial can we be and can we push back? Does it matter how loving we look when the world looks at love differently? There's these, um, obviously Tara, you have some real specific scenarios in your mind, which is totally fair. Like obviously we all do when we ask questions. I'm probably not sure what exactly those scenarios are. So let me just, I'll, I'll, I hope my answer helps. Here's a couple thoughts. What is a peacemaker? Um, well, we preach the gospel of peace. So a peacemaker primarily is one who's trying to bring the gospel of Christ into people's lives that they might be reconciled to God. And there's a difference um, between uh, going out to just tell people how right you are versus going out to invite them to receive Christ. That's the peacemaker. The peacemaker remembers that we are not just out to search and destroy and prove everybody's wrong that disagrees with us. Although, guess what? We really do believe people who disagree with, their, with us are wrong, and so do the people who disagree with us. <laughs> they believe that people who disagree with them are wrong. Everybody thinks that they're right and everyone else is wrong who disagrees with them. Everybody thinks that. I've never met anybody who thought differently, and um, that's just the way it is. But my agenda, my goal is to draw them to Christ, is to seek them to be reconciled. So Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They, don't, for, they know not what they do. Um, uh, Paul, after being persecuted and beaten and stoned and all this stuff, writing in Romans 11, oh, br my heart's desire and prayer to God for my, for my brethren according to the, to the flesh, for Israel, is that they may be saved. Like he never, he never stopped. He always wanted them to be saved. Like say Martin Luther, the reformer, he didn't have this attitude towards the Jews. He, he, he wasn't thinking, oh, I pray that they be saved. At the, by the end of his, at first he wanted them to be, uh, he wanted you know, them to get the gospel and he wanted to preach to them and all that. By the end of his life, he basically became a, a, a war maker <laughs> against them. And this is, this is a sad departure from the peacemaker attitude I'm thinking of. So what's a peacemaker? I think someone who wants to always see everyone as someone who's a potential Christian. Like, I want to see them come to Christ. I want to see them know Jesus. I always want to see them getting saved. Um, that doesn't, however, mean, you say, how controversial can we be and can we push back? One area where we push back especially is when people are not just in error, but when they are teaching error. The teachers, okay, Jesus is often accused of coming against religious people. That's not accurate. Um, everybody was religious. Okay, so, you know, you couldn't look at someone and be like, you're the religious ones and you're not. There's no non-religious mass of people that the Bible is like lifting up as the non-religious good people or followers of God. Like, we are 
this is a weird cultural thing. We say I have a religion, not a relationship. I have a relationship, not a religion. It's like, well, I have both. Like, I have a relationship with God, but Christianity is also a religion. I'm religious. You are too, even if you say you're not, <laughs> unless you are actually uh, like atheist agnostic and you have no religious beliefs or values. Um, so what is Jesus really about? He's not against the, the religious people and he's not necessarily opposed to leaders, but it, but it applies there. Maybe, maybe I should say he is. Um, I'll put it this way. When you look at a bunch of people and you see that some of them are the influencers who are leading others astray, these are the people you handle more harshly because they're leading others astray. So this is why I would never call out some random stranger and make a video about them, but I would totally make a video about Kenneth Copeland, right? Whose theology is terribly bad and whose representation of Christ is completely wrong because he's leading others astray. I love the people, so I'm gonna tackle the leaders who are pushing them away from the truth of Christ. This is why I'm gonna make a video dealing with, say, doc, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who I have nothing against, like, in, no angst or anxiety against in my heart towards the man. He's a leader who's influencing a lot of people. So out of love for the people, I will target the leaders in their content that they, pre they pre present. So I say, yeah, push back against the leaders in particular. That's probably a healthy thing. Um, and, it, and you say, does it matter how loving we look when the world looks at love differently? Um, ignore how loving you look and, f and, and focus on, this is gonna sound trite, but focus on just being loving genuinely. And then if you look loving, great. And if you don't, fine. But your emphasis is be, not look. So I want to actually be loving to you, whether you think I'm loving. If, if my goal is to love you, I can honor Christ easily in that relationship. If my goal is to make you think I love you, I'm going to be set up for all kinds of compromise. Because I'll be put in a position where in order for you to think I'm loving, I have to behave this way, which isn't consistent with really loving you. So focus on be, not look. Um, that's always good advice as a, as a Christian. All right, next question. This is from number 14 from Imbali mm, is stressed. <laughs> All right. I read a commentary on Philippians 2.12 and it was implied that salvation is not complete. What does that mean? Are we not fully saved? Okay, let's, let's look at Philippians 2.12 together and perhaps I'll have something to share about it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is often, um, so the, this is often used in the discussion about how one is saved by some to quote Philippians 2.12. They'll say, hey, you're going to have to like work to, to get saved. Um, there's, there's at least two major problems with that perspective. One is work out is not the same as work. So he doesn't say work for your own salvation. He says, work out your own salvation. And this, I have looked this up. You're welcome to look it up. It's almost like um, working out the, like in a math problem. So he's like, hey, I want you to pay attention to what, not only what your salvation means back in the past, but what it means in the present. Work this out, work out your own salvation or live out these things. Um, I don't think he's saying for salvation, right? Like you're gonna work for salvation. That would be taking this out of the context of what it's of what's being said there. Um, so workout is like work out the math problem. Um, uh, follow the equation. Connect the dots of your of your salvation. What it means that you're saved here with fear and trembling, with honest awareness, 
And then he gives the reason. This is the second reason why this is why you shouldn't read it that way. Uh, for it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. Verse 13 tells us what he means by verse 12, work out your own salvation. So here's the principle. He gives it to us in reverse order. So let me start with verse 13. Principle. If you're a Christian, God is working in you, right? So that you will have a will, a desire for, and the ability to perform what he wants you to do in your life. God, his spirit, this is the fruit of the spirit we're coming back to now. God, the fruit of the spirit is working in your life to desire the things of God and to live out the things of God in your life. So you can what? You can analyze your life and you can say, am I seeing God working in my life to will and do according to his good pleasure? Because if I am, then I'm seeing my salvation, the equation two plus two equals four, right? The, the equation is being played out in my life that God is working in me. I see it happening. doesn't mean I'm perfect because the scripture constantly warns about the sins of believers, not falling to sin, restoring one who has sinned. Um, it's not sinless perfectionism. It's just that when you get saved, there's a difference. And if you see that difference in your life, you're seeing your salvation worked out. If you don't see the difference, then it might lead to fear and trembling. This isn't perfection. It's not sinless perfectionism, but it's that it's that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person does do things to them. To them, they can quench and they can grieve the Spirit. They can be in places where they can't tell if they're saved or not. That's possible. But the standard, the standard normal Christian experience, what it ought to be, is that you see God working in you to will and do according to His good pleasure. That is, the equation works like this: faith plus Jesus equals salvation plus works. The equation is not faith plus Jesus plus works equals salvation. That would be the wrong, right? Paul's talking about the results of salvation, not how you get saved. So you're going to work it out because when you're saved, God's working in you, right? When you have faith in Jesus, you get saved and now God's working in you. So works result. If you don't see that, that could be a red flag. That's how I would take that. I hope that that has helped you. Dina Tyndale says, my husband has had a vasectomy before we got together. I used to be word of faith and claimed a baby, but now know they are heretical. Is it dumb to still believe in a baby? Dina, it's not dumb. Um, I don't have any special supernatural insight into your specific situation. There's nothing wrong with you believing that you're going to have a baby unless you're wrong. I don't know if you're right or wrong. Maybe God will do a miracle there. Or maybe this baby's going to come through adoption or something else. And I can't weigh in on that, being a total stranger on the internet. All I can say is, I do believe God does miracles. And I do not discourage, I don't want to discourage people from believing that God's doing a miracle in their life. I do want them to be careful that they're not projecting. And this is a fear for all of us, Dina, for you and me both, that we're projecting what we want into the heart of God. My heart wants this so bad that God must be granting it there's a danger of, of building our beliefs off of what we want to be true. And um, other, but otherwise, there's plenty of times where God does give people just what they want. I mean, read scripture where God's like, there's a, there's a barren family, right? Maybe usually it's like the woman who's, un, you know, they talk about her being barren because she doesn't have a baby. doesn't necessarily mean it was uh, physically her problem. Who knows? But anyway, she's barren and then God, God brings a miraculous baby along. So... Dina, God bless you. I pray he does provide that for you. And I pray he gives you the wisdom to discern the difference between the leading of the spirit and the leading of your heart. It doesn't mean your heart's wrong. 
You just don't want to think your heart is the Holy Spirit because that will lead to a number of other problems in our lives. And so may the Lord strengthen your faith and your wisdom. Number 16, Julius Cooper says, Some pastors say the coronavirus is God's plan. Others say it's a scourge of the enemy. How do we rationalize the two views when we both come from past when both come from pastors you trust and admire? Uh, Julius, here's kind of like an, an interesting thing. Um, I want to sort of go to both pastors and not rudely. I just want to ask them, and I'll ask you guys this too. If you have an opinion, say coronavirus, you think this is God's plan or it's a scourge of the enemy. Let's say if those are your two categories and you're on one side or the other. I just want to ask you, how do you know that? That's it. How do you know that? That's it. That's all I'm asking, right? We have physical health ailments being sent by Satan in the book of Job. We have health ailments being sent by sent by God in, um, let me think, in, uh, is it Judges? Um, no, no, no. First, first Samuel, and he sent to the Philistines, right? Um, how would you have known? If you didn't have the prophet telling you that this was God or not, like, how, how do you know this? This is my problem with people who are like, that hurricane, this earthquake, that natural disaster, and then they declare what God was doing behind it. I don't know how they know this, and that's what I want to know. Um, I've not said what I think the coronavirus is, whether it's God or Satan or something like that, um, because how would I even know? I don't know what's going on. Who am I? So the Lord hasn't revealed that to me. And if they're both disagreeing, I'd like to know why they think that. And I don't think it's an either or. Finally, I'll say this. I don't think it's an either or situation, Julius. It's possible that coronavirus is both God's plan and a scourge of the enemy at the same time because God will use what Satan does for his ultimate purposes as the book of Job will example for us. So all that being said, if the theology is God would never send illness, I think that theology is dangerously bad. If the theology is God always sends illness, if you have illness and sickness, it's always because God's sending it. I think that theology is equally dangerously bad. Scripture gives us examples of all kinds of variety of situations, and we can't just cookie cutter explain things like that. On what basis? How do you know that? That's what I want to know. Number 17, Jacob Seiler says, are holiness and faithfulness as important as having faith? It's my position that they are. I just want a fresh perspective. Thanks and God bless. Um, that's a tough one to answer. So holiness and faithfulness. So I'll take faithfulness in this context, Jacob, to be like uh, continuing, um, like living consistently with your Christian commitments and holiness is being very much a similar thing, right? Except holiness is more about the behaviors and faithfulness is also about like the reasons for the behaviors that you're doing it unto the Lord, I guess. But, um, but here's an example where you know, faith is more important um, in a sense. Faith, the guy, the thief on the cross just had faith. That's all he, he didn't have holiness. He didn't have faithfulness, like no longevity because he died right thereafter. So he just believed in Jesus and he got saved. Now, if he tried to exhibit holiness and faithfulness, which is righteous living and um, living intentionally for the Lord consistently over a long period of time, you know, that would be, it wouldn't work without the faith in Jesus. So I think the thing is that faith opens the door to where holiness and faithfulness can matter. And apart from faith in Christ, my holiness and my faithfulness, whatever else I attach to them, they're not helping. However, if that thief on the cross had lived 
Let's say he got taken off the cross and he survived. And he showed no holiness in his life and no faithfulness in his life. Here's where I think it matters. Not only is he going to hurt himself, hurt the name of Christ, grieve the Holy Spirit, damage the believers around him. Um, but at a certain point, you're going to say, your lack of holiness and your lack of faithfulness make me wonder if your claim to have faith is genuine. Right? Because the equation I, sh I shared earlier that faith plus Jesus equals salvation plus works. Like works, salvation results in works. Right? That's that's a, a thing that happens because I believe and I have, I'm saved. I will work. Um, it's not how I get saved. It's what I get when I'm saved. Well, what if there are no works? What if there's no faithfulness or holiness? What I wonder is whether there's faith in the first place. And this is what James 2 talks about. Like, hey, is that real faith? Is that real faith or is this dead faith? It doesn't really count. So yeah, faith in a sense matters more because it opens the door for, for holiness and faithfulness. Holiness and faithfulness matter a lot in the present Christian life because they point back towards faith and they show that it's true. And so they're both very important for different things. Number 18, um, Rustaldo Henry, why uh, was, excuse me, was John the baptizer born saved? Luke one fifteen says he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Um, so, I'm looking at the clock. <laughs> All right. Um, first off, let's just talk about the name John the Baptizer, Ristaldo. That's probably the more accurate term. We call him John the Baptist. That's just our culture. That's the way we've got many Bibles translated. But John is the one who baptized people. He was not the Baptist in that sense. It's probably more accurate to say he's the baptizer. So I'm, I'm cool with that, Ristaldo. Um, was he born saved, though? Let's go to Luke one fifteen and look at what Luke one fifteen says about John while he's in the womb of his mother. And this should... This should grab Christians who think that maybe babies aren't really fully like a person. Look at this. He will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Notice two things. He is the term used all throughout. The same he, that's a personal term. The same he, I know, I'm, I know this isn't your question, but I can't help it. I got to talk about it. The same he that's not going to drink wine or strong drink. That's John the Baptist or baptizer. He's the same he that'll be filled with the spirit while he is in his mother's womb. Now, if somebody had killed John while he was filled with the spirit in his mother's womb, do you not think that would be murder? I know that's not your question, Ristaldo. It's just the most important moral issue our culture faces apart from the gospel itself. So I bring it up whenever it's relevant. So um, your, your question is, was he saved at that point in time? Um, is it possible he was? Um, well, he certainly couldn't have had like a conscientious faith in God at that time. I don't believe so. I know there's a psalm that people would quote to support that, but I think they're misunderstanding it. Um, I would actually put my answer, hang my answer on this idea of being filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit, does that imply salvation in the Old Testament context? Because that's John. He's kind of in the Old Covenant. Even though he's present in the New Testament, he's under the Old Covenant before the gospel is fully understood and preached, before Jesus dies and rises. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a new experience um, as believers that is the indwelling of the Spirit. Not just being filled, but being indwelt. I, I look at these as different things. The filling of the Spirit right? That that could be... Um, especially in an old covenant context, it, it, in the new as well, it's across both like this, but it could be the, the spirit 
comes upon you for a specific purpose and calling. But this is not the indwelling of the Spirit we get in the New Testament after the death of Christ and resurrection. That indwelling is, is, is the seal of the Spirit. That's affirming salvation of a person. But the filling of the Spirit in the other sense, in the God's Holy Spirit is, is filling to enable them for some purpose, some cause, some task. That happens to Samson and then the Spirit departs from him. But I think this was his ability to be the judge, this sort of superpowered judge, that the Spirit departed and the Spirit comes back. Right? So then this is not, I don't think, a salvation question. I think this is an enabling question. Um, Saul, who had the Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit left him. So this is a, a different, um, in a different context. The indwelling means you're saved. The filling does not. That would be how I would interpret this. And I, I should caution everybody to know this. I may change my mind on that view in, in the future because I do feel like it covers a large number of various scriptures. And I would love to take that view and sort of re-examine all those scriptures to make sure that I got it right. That's my current understanding. So I don't think John was saved in the womb. Alternately, he could have been, in which case Calvinists would love to say, see? <laughs> but um, uh, what we could all say and should all say, is that what what John experienced is a rare special occasion and shouldn't be turned into a rule as if it's true for everybody. All right, number 19, this is from Rowena1, who says, Blessings to you and your mods. I'm confused with how to know whether a verse is for me or not. I see devotional books where they pluck a verse out. Uh, they, they pluck out a verse and never know if it is for us now or not. Rowena, I'm so glad you are struggling with this. That is awesome. Thank you for struggling with this. We need more people struggling with this, even though it's unpleasant. When you hear a, a verse, you go, is that really for me in the way that I'm thinking right now? Is that verse, does it really apply to me? Is that about me like that? That's so valuable that you do that. Now this, what here's the problem, is that now you had all these verses, these like promise book type verses, devotional verses, and now you're like looking and you're going, I don't know what I can learn from this anymore. And so now you're sort of forced to like go read the Bible in context and read the whole book of Philippians and the whole book of first Peter and the whole, the whole book of Mark and the whole book of Exodus and read a number of Psalms and ask yourself, can everyone do what I'm doing to this, to these verses? Is that allowed? Is that safe? Is that okay? This is a really helpful thing as a teacher. I have a rule for myself and I, I try to always follow it, which is never quote a verse out of context. So there's times where in my own head, because of the because I've listened to a million Bible studies, right? Just I just enjoy listening. There's times where I'm going to prepare a study and I'm about to make a point, and I think, ooh, this verse would help support this point. This would really you know, mean a lot to people. It would. I want to encourage them with it. Before I share it, here's the rule I'm going to encourage you guys. Before I share it or believe that that verse can be used that way, even though I've heard it used that way by other pastors. I go back to the verse in context and I read before and after and I ask myself, am I using this passage fairly? Now, here's what you do next. If the answer is yes, you apply it directly. If the answer is no, you look somewhere else for that sort of encouragement and you don't get the encouragement until you find it clearly in scripture. And if the answer is, I'm not sure, I don't understand this passage, then you just put it in the bucket of, I don't know yet. And when you get there, you get there. I think that's a really healthy habit to have as a Christian. I don't want to take any verse out of context. And if you practice this on yourself, if you rob yourself of quick comfort that comes from verses out of context, that's an unpleasant experience. You will protect yourself 
from deceptive teachings from verses out of context. It becomes a habit for you. You hear it and you immediately go, I'm going to look that up. Is that what that passage is about? You know, and it, and it makes you um, a Berean. Number 20, and then I have a little, a little announcement for you. Brandon Powell says, hey, Mike, in one of your videos, you said how the Textus Receptus came from the King James and not the other way around. I've, I haven't been able to find info on that, and I was hoping you could clarify. Ooh, I'm glad you asked this question, Brandon. So um, I've had a number of people who understand me saying that. Um, maybe I worded it poorly. Here's what I'm actually saying, right, whether you believe it or not. <laughs> I'm suggesting that um, the Texas Receptus, a lot of people who believe in, so the, the King James Version is didn't come in English, right? They translated it into English from original languages. And there's people who think that they had sort of like this one, this manuscript of, say, one manuscript of Mark, one manuscript of you know Revelation, of, of Luke, and of, of all the different books of the Bible, and that, that those are like the good manuscripts. And they were translated to the King James. And these are the faithful ones we can trust. And other manuscripts, you know, can't be trusted. That's called like the, the Textus Receptus, okay? That's what that is. And it's um, the received text is what we're saying there in like Latin. Now, what I want people to know is that that isn't how it works. It's not like the Textus Receptus is one manuscript, right, with, without variance. Rather, what the people with the King James Version did was they looked at a bunch of different different translations, not translation, well, they did use translations, but they looked at different manuscripts, different Greek, Latin, various different versions of the Bible as well. And they gathered together and sometimes they did what's called textual criticism where they chose a reading where they said, hey, in this verse in First John, we're gonna use this manuscript, not that one. That shouldn't scare us. There's a lot of manuscripts, they don't all agree, but with Textual criticism, we can often, we can basically discover what the Bible said without any fear to be in your heart on the issue. So they used um, textual criticism. Now, the results of that textual criticism are the textus receptus. So all the readings that the King James uses, all the Greek and stuff, you're going to find all of them, but not in any one manuscript of the, old, of the New Testament in particular. There's going to be a variety of manuscripts they looked at to compare to compile, this is this is our textual, you might consider a textual apparatus, right? This is what we're looking at as, as what we're gonna translate into the King James. So people, when they look at the King James and think it came from these this one sort of Greek source for the New Testament, that's not accurate. There were decisions they made, there were choices they made about one manuscript versus another. There's no one manuscript that has all the readings exactly as they have it in the New Testament of the King James Version. That manuscript doesn't exist. So the Textus Receptus is a result of critical analysis of texts. I'm sorry if I'm losing anybody on this. Um, it is not the result of one perfect manuscript that they used. I hope that helps. Um, we can be very confident. I, I, I used to be kind of almost King James only, like I leaned that way because of the you know things I'd, I'd been told by people I love and still respect who just didn't know. They just echoed the same things. They'd be like, look, they're trying to take Jesus's name out of the Bible and stuff. And, when you dig deeper, as I dug a lot deeper, you find out that King James Version is a pretty good version, but it's very difficult for people to read nowadays. And it doesn't include the fact that we now have greater knowledge about the original writings of the Bible than we did 500, 600 years ago. So it's a good thing to be looking at, I think, the newer translations. Not all of them but many of them are pretty good. All right, I hope that helps. If you guys want to know more, I will put a link 
um, I'll put it on the end screen too, to my three-part series on um, in my Evidence for the Bible series where I talk about like variants in the Bible and how we got our translations. And this is where the quote is coming from that Brandon Powell is asking about. So yeah, this the Textus Receptus is a result of um, textual criticism from the available manuscripts the King James translators had and um, other people before them whose work they relied upon. All right. 21. We don't have a 21st question, but I have a quick announcement, which is just to let you guys know that Bible Thinker mugs are available if you want them. Um, they're kind of, especially if you're out of the U.S. I'm sorry. It's I don't even know if you can get it shipped. Like there's been some trouble with it, or the price goes like way up. I'm not the guy selling the mugs. Like literally, I just have a mug. I'm not selling them. Five dollars from each of these mugs though goes to a specific ministry that we're trying to help out right now this month, as we did last month, and that is. Um, Restoring Faith. Restoring Faith is uh, the Liangs, the, the Liang family. They go and they minister to people in different parts of the world who are refugees from persecution. And let me see, there's, um, oh, um, she says she, she wants to clarify. There's three refugee groups, three refugee groups that they deal with. One is Syrians who are Muslims, Iraqis who are persecuted Christians and Sudanese. And they do it in the name of Christ openly do it in the name of Christ and they're helping people who are in really hard situations. If you're interested in more, I have a link to their website down below or you can go to restoringfaithinc.org, restoringfaithinc.org and I'm getting paid absolutely nothing to say all that. I just we just wanted to help them out cuz I'm interested in little ministries that nobody knows about and making more people know about them. So, there you go. That's it. Thank you guys so much for joining for the Q&A. We will be back on Monday with the next teaching in the Mark series. We're coming to the end of the Mark series. It's almost over. It's kind of crazy. I have a lot of work to do in the next few weeks on the Mark series, the next like month or so. Um, and I'm looking forward to being able to teach that stuff in a lot of detail. It's coming. It's coming. I'm working on it. I'm prepping on it. And um, other than that, um, that's all. I guess all I got to say. Thanks so much. Check out the new BibleThinker.org website if you haven't already. We have series there. It's all free, but we have series stuff there. We have a, two different search features, one that lets you search the Q&As for individual questions that take you right to the moment where the question was asked. Isn't that amazing? And thanks to a bunch of volunteers. And I mentioned volunteers last week, but I forgot to mention um, uh, uh, Jordan Smith, who was the guy who did the basic design, the bones of the site, and I'm grateful for him uh, helping with that as well. So just thanks, y'all. I, I don't have anything else to say. I'm leaving. Bye.